This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Roni Leck of the Mesoamerican Permaculture Institute in Guatemala. I first became aware of Roni years ago through my friends at the Finger Lakes Permaculture Institute, but what I knew up until he and I sat down barely revealed the depth and breadth of his exploration and implementation of permaculture. He leverages decades of experience applying permaculture to indigenous agricultural methods and combines work, outreach, and activism into a cohesive approach to teaching and design. The conversation which follows progresses from his early days of discovering permaculture through Ali Sharif and studying with Jeff Lawton, to his current work building networks and native food products. He also shares his concerns about land access, food sovereignty, and political will in Mesoamerica. Enjoy this conversation with Roni, and I'll join you again after. Then, Roni, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to permaculture and your many different practices? Okay, sure. I'm Ronaldo Lek Ajkot, or Roni, and uh, I'm uh, Maya Cachiquel from uh, Guatemala. I guess I came to permaculture uh, doing my work on uh, traditional ancestral knowledge. And my work was to try to reconstruct some of this uh, ancestral Mayan knowledge. My background in uh, schooling is in anthropology, but I didn't want to do anthropology as a, as just for uh, academy. My idea was to do research, but to put it into application, to put it into practice. And so yeah, I started to do this work in uh, in 1994 in Guatemala. And, uh, and the first step that I did was to try to get a, a piece of land, which is very difficult in Guatemala because that's one of the main uh, problems in Guatemala is the land uh, land acquisition and distribution. Uh, because it's a country where few people own most of the most of the land, and the majority have very few, uh, very little land. And the majority of the country also are uh, rural and uh, farming background, but with no land, that makes it very difficult. So the land that I got was uh, a piece of land that it was uh, flooded, which nobody wanted. So it was a, the best piece of land that I could uh, encounter because nobody wanted it. And what I wanted to put into practice is this uh, Chinampa system, which is one of the main practices that the not only the Maya, but throughout the indigenous Americas practice this system of uh, canals or raised beds or artificial islands in managing water, either by inundation or channeling water. And uh, the ancients figured that uh, it was uh, easier to make uh, fertility in the mud. So basically, they harvest uh, the mud from the canals every year. And with that, they enrich the, not only enrich the soil, but they also build up the beds or the island. So that was my first project was to uh, try to reconstruct the system of that. 
So for that, I had the help of uh, also of uh, elders. So my team was of elders, including my grandfather. And the idea was to learn from from them. So doing this uh, work, I also realized that uh, not all ancestral knowledge was able to to be practiced in the context of uh, today because one of the main problems, as I mentioned at the beginning, was uh, land. So without land or proper land, you know, we couldn't do all these practices. And one of the, also another example of, of traditional practices is the slash and burn agriculture which a lot of times is, is has a bad reputation, but it is a, a good practice, a sustainable practice, if you have plenty of land to rotate. And still some, some people do that, but only the ones who have uh, plenty of land. But for the majority, this was not uh, something that could be continued on. So if you burn your land, year after year, that's not sustainable anymore, you know. Same with the chinampas. Uh, you needed to have the water in the proper conditions to establish a system like that. And most of water has been uh, monopolized. And most of the indigenous people now live in the, in the hills and the mountains where it's more difficult to do agriculture. So... I realized that not all traditional practice could be revived because of the context and farmers were adapting the plantation models, the big farms, big monocultures, agrochemical plantations, and they were adapting these methods because they could see the results, but they were not able to get all the inputs and and all the the right conditions in a forum to work. So this was something that was not sustainable for the people, the uh, majority of the people. And so I started to look into alternatives and started to go deeply into different agricultures, uh, schools and of thought and practices in going deeply into organic agriculture, uh, biological, agroecology, natural, biointensive, everything that was out there. And looking for solutions and alternatives, I ran into Permacultura America Latina, PAL. I don't know if you heard about it. This is an organization that was run by Ali Sharif, with a headquarters in New Mexico. So I ran into them and they said, well, we cannot support your project economically, but uh, we could uh, teach you a course. We could teach a course, permaculture course for you and your people. So because I found it so interesting and uh, I decided, yes, to go for it. And what attracted me about permaculture was not only the the ideas that they had to share with me, but also that it is a philosophy that is based also on uh, 
in practice that is based on uh, ancestral and traditional knowledge, you know, and based on nature and, uh, and included new knowledge as well. So that's exactly what I was looking for or that I was developing, something that was based on uh, nature in, uh, in traditional ways, but also integrated the new knowledge. So I found that very, very interesting. So we had our first course. We organized the, our first course in 1994, 95. That was 1995. We had two courses, 1995, 1996. And it was taught by Jeff Lawton. So we had uh, farmers from all over Guatemala. And I think we had like about 40 or 50 farmers in each of the course. And uh, eh, I was translating, eh, so it took eh, more than that for me to to convince to be into permaculture because I was kind of translating. It was hard to to be able to absorb everything, you know. And um, so, but with these eh, two courses, we basically had the the fundamentals. And um, but I was a little skeptical still. And I thought that this was uh, something that worked very well in the Western world and in Australia where they had flat land and where they had resources. So I was very skeptical still. And uh, I was invited to go to the, um, I don't, I don't remember if it was the IPC4 in Australia. I was invited to go there with Ali Sharif. And that's where I met uh, at, at this uh, convergence and conference, international conference. I met people from uh, that came from countries with the same conditions that we had. Countries like uh, Vietnam and uh, Africa, you know, where they have very difficult conditions too. And they really inspire me this project the presentations of this project uh, really inspire me and the people who came uh, really inspire me especially narasana who was at that point was the the secretary of dr ben Cut in india and i was able to travel with him in throughout australia for two weeks and that really motivated me to adapt uh, permaculture because I said, okay, if that, if this works under conditions that were like ours or even worse conditions, then we can, we can do this in Guatemala. So since 1998, we started to teach permaculture, but our permaculture was a, a combination of traditional ancestral knowledge and Permaculture, you know, we kind of uh, brought these two together and starting to teach since uh, since then. And our mission at the beginning was just to disseminate the permaculture throughout uh, Mesoamerica. And so basically we taught a course, more than one course in all of the countries in Mesoamerica. 
We in Mexico, and that is Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica. So we did the whole uh, courses uh, throughout Mesoamerica with the idea too that we would be eventually would have a a network, a Mesoamerican network, and uh, and perhaps a permaculture institute in each one of these countries. Uh, we did that for about uh, maybe ten years. And at the end, we did created the Mesoamerican Permaculture Institute in the year 2000. But the whole network, really, we could not, we were not able to pull it together. We did taught courses in all these countries, but we were not able to bring as a one common movement, you know, because of many many circumstances. So even though it was a small country, small area, but we say that there are big distances. So we just focus on the Mesoamerican Permaculture Institute in Guatemala, which is a, a education training center uh, where we teach uh, workshops, courses, tours, educational tours, and uh, yeah, just bring people to uh, learn from them as well, not only as teaching, because we believe that it's, it's both ways, is is learning with from each other. That was our methodology, was campesino, campesino, farmer to farmer, which basically is is learning from each other, you know, and not assuming that we were the teachers and we were the experts, but learning from uh, from each other. Especially when we talk about in Mesoamerica, there is so much uh, background and, and agriculture from people there that we couldn't, we would not pretend to teach them, but also they need to learn with from them as well. So in this, uh, we we were able to buy a a small small piece of land that was uh, ideal conditions because it had the water, flat land, but also a steepness and land that was totally degraded. So it was a good uh, showcase for people, you know, to see what it was possible. But also at the same time, it was a beautiful place because this is in Lake Atitlan, one of the most uh, beautiful lakes in the in the area or in the world. So that was the idea: is to have a place too where people could get uh, inspired. So at the beginning, we only work with farmers, but then we realized that the farmers were the very uh, older population. And they were very tired too, and the, the young people were not around, and they were not taking farmers. So that kind of uh, alarmed us, and uh, then we started to be more inclusive, and we started to to work with uh, with the youth, with the universities, yeah, with the school system, and uh, the technicians. And in the last uh, few years, 
we also went into the international community. Also, we work with the international communities because they were the ones who could uh, afford the education. So we work with uh, universities and organized groups that would come and uh, not only learn about permaculture, but also about the Mesoamerican culture, ecology, and, and politics. So we offer them either uh, tours or short courses, you know, and we also taught one international course every year. We had uh, one international course. These places, uh, Mesoamerican Permaculture Institute, that was its main objective, was to disseminate uh, permaculture ideas and, and teachings, also demonstration center, and the other important work that we always had from the beginning was working with the native seeds and seed banking, community seed banking. So that is our, our, was our main project, which inspired the movement of community seed banks in the country. And now there is like four or five community seed banks in the country. And some, uh, I think, are bigger than, than ours, which made us uh, feel good. And yeah, the idea was to promote and work with uh, native foods and native seeds because Native foods and native seeds are also uh, knowledge, as you know, and that's where the the knowledge still is, is is with the seeds. And so, by preserving the seeds, we also were preserving traditional knowledge. You know, so that in in general, you know, that's uh, what my work has been is through the uh, Mesoamerican Permaculture Institute, but also uh, I did some uh, consultancy for NGOs and um, international agencies that wanted to implement uh, permaculture or sustainable agricultural projects. Today I'm in Canada, which is a whole other story, but here also I'm looking in ways to continue my work. And, uh, and also one of the ideas that I'm here in Canada is also to, to find more, um, contacts and network and resources for the work that we are doing in, uh, in Mesoamerica. And does that work with the, Permaculture Institute of Mesoamerica, that still continues even though you're in Canada right now? Correct. Yes. The whole idea was that the, is, it was to create a, also a, or, or train or, or team that was capable of continuity work because the idea was not that the Permaculture Institute was myself or that I had to be there in order to be running. So there's still working. They're still running, even though with difficulties and, and this year, as you know. But uh, yeah, one of our big projects too that we are developing is in order to promote uh, native foods is to develop uh, a product. So one of our main products right now is uh, amaranth. 
So amaranth by making it in, into cereals, flowers, and um, nutritional supplements. That's kind of like what we we were, we were working in the in the last uh, two years is that you know in order for people to appreciate native foods by processing them and making it into products because the reality today is that people don't want to prefer that everything is already made, you know? And uh, I guess people too value more when things are in a package than when they're just raw, unfortunately. But that was the one strategy that we found. And because we were seeing that it was a very slow, uh, people were uh, utilizing native foods and were adapting more non-native foods because it had a, a market value. Okay. You know, so now you go to the market in Mesoamerica and what you see is mostly non-native foods like cabbage, carrots, broccoli, all these northern vegetables that were recently introduced into the country is uh, what is the, so, the so-called non-traditional export crops. So because they have a market value, people who tend to, to grow those foods rather than uh, native foods. And growing those foods for market then and being able to earn an income through that production pushes native foods further and further away from the market stalls and the grocery shelves, but your work of taking amaranth and turning it into a packaged product can then get that native food back onto the shelves and be competitive with those northern or western products? Yes, that's the whole idea. The challenge is always with the price, you know, because we're talking about a population that it's poor uh, or that does not have too much uh, of uh, income and where the processed food is very cheap, as you know, and that makes it also difficult. You know, it's how do you market products in a population where there is not much income. And I think of in the United States, we also have the issue of food deserts and access to markets with fresh foods or even just a supermarket that has a variety of foods. And so for many communities here, the availability of packaged processed foods makes them more prevalent in the American diet just because it's there and that we don't have to travel as far to get it. Is that a similar issue that you see within Mesoamerica or is it just that the packaged foods are taking up so much space? No, that is exactly the same issue. And today or now, uh, you can see how the government or the system also promote this. Like, for example, right now with all the confinement and the restrictions that the country imposed, they basically are not allowing the farmers to market their produce. But the industry is free to come with all its junk food into these communities. So that is something that yeah we can see there too, and something that is 
rapidly changing the habits of people in uh, in Mesoamerica, eating habits in my uh, department or my state, where we are considered uh, rural in agriculture, sixty uh, percent of the of the food was coming from outside, and even though we produce a lot of a lot of food, it doesn't stay in the area either. You know, it goes into countries like El Salvador, where there is no vegetable production. You know, or Honduras, where the certification has been heavily, but also not the right conditions for vegetables. So they rely a lot on, on the Guatemalan highlands for their food. So a lot of the food that is produced in our area also needs to be shipped out, you know, in their little state. So that's that is something that we see today that the government and the, the system is is uh, promoting more of the uh, processed foods and uh, favoring processed foods to come into the communities rather than supporting the the local food production. You know? And with what you detailed, it sounds like the neighboring countries that do not have the same production then create a market for the fresh fruits and produce coming out of Guatemala, but then that leaves an opening for industrial foods then to come back in and take up that space of what's being sold as a commodity. Yes, yes. So if you see in the, um, like obesity is a big problem now in malnutrition, it's it's a huge problem now. And, and a lot of time is not because of the lack of food, but it's because of the type of food that people are eating. So Mexico is number one in obesity in Latin America, and second is Guatemala. And Guatemala is one of the most uh, malnourished countries in the world today. And it's kind of hard to believe because you see food everywhere when you go there. There is production everywhere. But all of that food doesn't, doesn't stay there. Or people are becoming more preferring more processed food than their local foods. And that makes me think of like in the United States, a lot of our issue with obesity is that many of our calorie dense foods are incredibly inexpensive, that it's easy to get access to high fat, high carbohydrate foods for just a couple of dollars. But if you're looking for quality proteins, whether that's vegetable or meat, or to fill out your pantry, that those prices can often outstrip those inexpensive processed foods. Yeah, it's the same way there. So, for example, one of the one of the most almost institutionalized. Oh, it is not almost. It is a, one of institutionalized nutritional product. It's called Incaparina, and it's sold by one of the richest family in the country. And that's uh, like a nutritional drink. And uh, originally it had almonds and cotton seed meal. And uh, today it's only uh, corn and soya base. And corn and soya from the, the U.S. And that product is enforced in the school system. And that's, for example, the one that we need to compete with 
and they sell a bag of that for for a dollar. And our product that we're making, we cannot sell for less than two dollars. You know, so that is the biggest difficulty because it's so so cheap because they use all this cheap corn and soya from the U.S. And then we are using only local products and that can't compete, you know, well with them when you have something that costs twice or three times more, you know. And I was able to find that product while we were speaking and it looks like that bag that you're referencing is that's a dollar contains 24 servings. Like there's a lot of calories available in just that one inexpensive bag. And it looks like it's vitamin fortified and everything else as opposed to providing like a rich whole grain diet through something like amaranth or quinoa or some of these other grains that are native to uh, Mesoamerica. Yes. And you know, the, the sad thing about the whole story about this product is that that was uh, created by the INCAP, which was the, it's called the Nutrition Institute of Central America and Panama in the 1970s. So it was a public institution. And then this uh, family, basically, supposedly they bought the patent. And not only now they have owned the patent, but they have, like I was saying, institutionalized that into the school system and into all the government uh, entities that provide nutrition is all based on that product. And that's where I was wondering with something that you mentioned earlier about teaching students and other people about the politics of the Mesoamerican region. Is that one of the things that you face with trying to implement permaculture and bring about change is finding the space within the political system to gain access to land, to create room within the marketplace for your products? Does that like political conversation enter into creating this kind of change for you? Uh, yes, it's inevitable to to not talk uh, politics in uh, Latin America, you know, and uh, that is uh, one of the also of obstacles of promoting permaculture in Central America is because uh, Central America is so politicized, uh, so political that they see permaculture as as a gringo thing because if you see in Costa Rica they have uh, 84 permaculture places and none of them teach to the local people you know so from the locals they see that that is something for the foreigners you know and that is, is one of our obstacles for us to, to promote it because uh, in one of our critics too uh, Criticism towards us is that we're too political, you know, that we talk too much politics, but it's inevitably because without the politics in against us, you know, we have to address them in order to change. You know, we cannot talk about doing permaculture if we don't have land, if we don't have water, or if we're being invaded by the mining companies, by the hydroelectric companies, you know, and the Monsanto laws, you know, all of these uh, are issues that affect us 
greatly and that we need to to face them and address them. So yes, our center is, we do address a lot of the politics of the country, you know, because that's part of our, our reality that we need to change. It's one of those places that I know that I personally wanted to avoid for a long time as a permaculture practitioner was just being able to do the work. But even here where I live in Pennsylvania in the United States, running into so much legislation that keeps us from being able to do what we want to do. Even something as simple as being able to keep backyard chickens in an area that is, you know, zoned rural and considered agricultural, there were still limits on the amount of land that you needed just to raise a small flock. And it was, you know, multiple acres. And land here gets expensive very, very quickly. And so we were seeing how much that prevents our ability to practice and do these things that could regenerate the earth, but we can't without the political will and ability to change that conversation and start changing the legislation. Yeah, so I know that the permaculture, you know, tries to stay away from politics and supposedly not, it's not about politics and it's supposed about doing and practices, but like you say, there is a reality that we, that it's, there and that needs to be also changed in order for permaculture to come through. You know, we have to, we do have to change this political system as well. And though I would love to dive into more of that, there was something else that you had mentioned in the beginning that I'd like to ask you a bit more about, is you had said that you were learning these traditional farming techniques and wanting to implement them, and then you discovered permaculture. Did you find that permaculture and those ideas and techniques allowed you to better implement these traditional methods on the land that you had available to keep the fertility in the waters or to regenerate the muds as you were building your tanapas? Totally. I mean, that's the way I see permaculture is a complement of uh, traditional knowledge. Yeah, in a lot of the traditional practices, we didn't understood until uh, we got into the permaculture principles in a uh, way. Then that also made it more uh, easy to understand the uh, traditional systems and traditional ways. So definitely permaculture complemented it and helped us to understand these uh, systems that, you know, today are not in place anymore. And there's no people who know about them, or at least not much, not many people. And also uh, permaculture, we found that it was is a way to communicate these uh, traditional ways to non-indigenous people. You know, it was a language that where we could express these ways, you know, these are ancestral ways. Because a lot of the ancestral knowledge is also in the language, in the native language. And if you don't understand that, you not, cannot transmit it, you know. But with permacultural principles, we are able to communicate that. You know, I think uh, there is a permaculture in, in, in traditional ways. They, like I was saying, they are based on the same, in the same, um, principles of of nature and um, community you know in uh, yeah having nature as your your guide as your teacher and also working for 
for your community and taking care of people. That is the also the principles of ancestral knowledge. Ancestral knowledge is based on that and the and knowledge of nature and the respect of nature, but also on building communities and relationships with the people as well. What you say about permaculture being a way to translate these ideas is interesting to me because it was one of the conversations that I had with David Holmgren many years ago was about how learning about permaculture in the landscape gives us a way to talk about really any idea that we might have when it comes to sustainability, permanent agriculture, permanent culture, that we can use this basic knowledge and language of ethics and principles in the landscape as a place to learn because it is a tangible way to experience these ideas, but then we can take that and use it then to communicate with anybody about a variety of these ideas if they've taken even an introduction to permaculture. Correct. That's how uh, I see it as well. So it was a, it's a good medium, good tool, a good language to translate this because uh, also our place, like I was saying, was not just about uh, Mayan farmers, but now we extended to non-farmers, to non-Mayans as well, and to the international community, you know, and uh, yeah, so that's, uh, permaculture is the way for us to, to share that, uh, that cultural heritage too. And when you were teaching and traveling and studying throughout Mesoamerica, were you learning additional traditional techniques that you've integrated into your permaculture teachings and practices? Yes, yes, yes. We always uh, have a, in I in for those uh, knowledge and for those uh, experiences, you know. And a lot of times they might not seem to be a permaculture, you know, technique, but it can, it is something that, you know, we can, that we have used, you know, and we use that. And, uh, like one example would be this Chinampa system. You know, when we, we understood from the books that there was, that was the main system of agriculture, but there was no textbook of how to make one. You know, <laughs> and the the only living chinampas it was in uh, Mexico City. You know, Xochimilco. I don't know if you heard about it. Uh, that's the only living chinampas, uh, pre-colonial living chinampas. Still, 160 kilometers of canals. And yeah, but it was more even. That that's just the there were four lakes that were channeled, and that's only one that was left. And, uh, but before going to Xochimilco, we tried to do the, the chinampas and, and it didn't work quite right until we learned about permaculture principles. And then it totally made sense. You know, it's like the first question was how nature does it? You know, and, and our problem with our chinampas was that they were getting a sediment and Clugged almost uh, immediately or after two big rains and then our system was not working anymore. And then it's like, you know, they ask the question, how would they nature do it? How does a river able to 
uh, neatly separates mud, rocks, sand, and uh, organic matter. It neatly separates, and that's exactly what we needed for our system to to work. So by asking that question, then we was like, okay, imitate a river pattern, imitate the nature. So there is no straight lines in nature, you know. So that totally with those principles, we were able to design a system that's still working on today, even though it has very little maintenance, still working. So it's over uh, 20 years now. Uh, yeah, it's like 25 years now and still uh, in place. And um, that's a complement from permaculture, you know, to traditional system or that uh, helped us to understand better. It was one of the things Rebecca had said was that if I would sit and listen to you, that we could have a conversation that went for hours. And there's so much that you've brought up in our time together that I would love to dig into more. For now, though, I think I'd like to ask you for your final thoughts, and we can go ahead and draw our conversation today to a close. I just one of my comments that we saw, I was telling you that uh, I felt a little frustrated because uh, we could not uh, promote permaculture in Latin America because of the connotation that it has, you know, that it's something only for foreigners. You know, and um, and that is uh, something really, really detrimental for our work, you know, because they automatically also link us to, oh, this is a foreign way, you know, this is not a native way, you know, or that we are not politically enough, you know. And, uh, but also what we saw also in Latin America is that many of the permacultures that came, came with this attitude that they, they knew the answer to everything and that they had the answer for, for all the problems there. You know, they, and I know that this, uh, after you have taken your course, you're so motivated and so ready to go to do it and help others, you know. But I think we have to be a little bit more humble when we are into other, uh, especially if we're working in another uh, culture, you know, in a culture where people been doing farming for, for a long time. So we have to be a little humble, you know, when we come in and, and teach more about permaculture and that I know that we can make changes in our land and, and very rapidly, but in the whole, if we want to contribute it to the bigger society, we have to be a little bit more humble and more open to learn from people too, you know, from learn, especially other farmers and not come to an attitude that, that we know everything, you know, so that's also a big one recommendation that I give to permacultures, you know, is that you have to be also humble and, and, and listen to others too, and learn from others because learning is, is uh, every day. You know, it's an ongoing, it's a never, a never ending process, you know, because uh, 
otherwise you know also uh, we will not be able to to disseminate permaculture more in the places also where it's needed more you know and that includes to the you know working with uh, native seeds and native food you know i know that also permacultures get very exciting about trying about everything you know they can and all this but i think it's it's also if when you're in a context you know you try always to prioritize your native foods your local foods you know and once you have that worked out then you can introduce whatever other things you know uh, so that's just some of my thoughts that i have for for the public out there you know well i really appreciate that because you reflect on some things that i've not only experienced but also had conversations with other folks about when it comes to that excitement when we come out of a permaculture design course to take a few years and to speak with some folks who have been doing this for a while both within and without the community so that we can learn more about what the lay of the land is and as well yeah that there's so much more that we can learn in a lifetime of practice that the permaculture design course is really only an introduction to the whole world that's ahead of us yeah exactly it's just the introduction you know it's it's the way to come in you know and not necessarily all the tools that you have there well i really appreciate that and the time that you spent with me today so thank you for joining me okay scott yeah you take care and that was Roni Leck. find out more about him and his work at imapermaculture.org and of course by the link in the show notes just as interviews end far too soon it is also difficult to encapsulate the thoughts that remain after a conversation that ranges as widely as this and touches on issues bigger than our individual practices. What I enjoy in this moment is Roni's efforts to educate students about what permaculture is and is not. For those people in the countries he serves, to share the ways that permaculture can be applied to indigenous practices and be viewed as something for them, not just for foreigners. For those of us who have studied permaculture, the advice to listen, slow down, and remain humble in the face of experience and the intersection with our permaculture knowledge and exuberance. But that's just one lesson from this time together. What did you take away from this conversation with Roni? Let me know by leaving a comment in the show notes, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you enjoyed this episode and would like more from the show, Come join me and an amazing group of community members on Patreon. As a Patreon patron, you'll receive the weekly update that gives you a glimpse of what's happening behind the scenes each week, updates on the latest interviews, plus additional resources, book recommendations based on what I'm currently reading, as well as what I'm listening to, whether that's new music, a podcast, or something else to enjoy with your ears. Each month I also post an open AMA to help answer any particular questions you might have about your projects and permaculture. All of that and more at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. You can also buy me a cup of coffee to assist in late-night editing sessions at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. Until the next time, spend each day integrating permaculture into your daily practices while taking care of Earth, yourself, 
and each other.